Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Director of Quantitative Market Strategy, Denise Chisholm, is back on the program to lay out the economic factors driving the markets and what sectors to keep an eye on. Firstly, Denise tackles inflation and explains if it's a real issue right now. She says economic indicators are tricky, especially when you narrow into month-on-month stages. There's a problem with it because there's a lot of noise in the data itself. She suggests to not look at it month by month, but rather look at the trends. So is inflation a scare right now? Denise suggests it's not. Denise speaks about fourth quarter earnings with host Pamela Ritchie. Pamela asks if there's an element of chucking everything in, including the kitchen sink. Denise agrees there is that element. She says it's interesting because consumer discretionary earnings haven't been particularly good. The headline numbers haven't been good, and that's giving some investors a reason to sell. Denise notes the top three sectors to keep an eye on are consumer discretionary, financials, and metals and mining. She adds that all three sectors have a cohesive theme, valuation support. The bottom sectors in her mind are consumer staples, utilities, and real estate. Please note Denise references a few slides that were shown to the original webcast audience. This podcast was recorded on March 1st, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So many pieces to look at and to watch. Let's uh, maybe you can focus us a little bit on inflation. Is this is this a research that we're watching right now? That's certainly what investors are concerned about, right? So we had the 0.5 month-on-month change in the CPI. And then we had the 0.6 month-on-month change in the PCA, which is obviously the Fed's preferred version. Look, I think economic indicators are very tricky, and we've talked about that a lot here, especially when you narrow in to month-on-month changes. So there's a problem with it because there's a lot of noise in the in the data itself. And what we saw in payrolls, what was that, two months ago? Crazy. With the benchmark revision, where we saw, I think it was five, it was 400-ish on the non-farm payroll change to change and 900 on the household survey. And what investors don't notice is that when the benchmark revision happens, especially in the household survey, when they find employed people, because the government often finds people and income in hindsight, right, when they do their annual benchmark revision, in the household survey, they dump them all in one month. And there's a little footnote that says not break adjusted. (laughs) So there is a lot of quirkiness as it relates to government data. So the more you focus in on month-to-month changes, the more suspect you are to sort of falling prey to those things. We are seeing one of those with inflation right now. Generally speaking, prices are not revised, but the weighting behind the prices is. And most times, in most cycles, that's not a big deal. You don't buy meaningfully different baskets or quantities of goods or services. But what happened in the pandemic? We did. We did buy dramatically different quantities of goods and services. So that benchmark revision now restates some of those weights. 
And what you had in the PCE deflator whose only three months were open to that historic revision. So only those three months got revised up for the higher goods prices, but nothing prior to that got revised lower. Ultimately that will happen probably this fall. So that's a little bit of the nuanced data and like reason number 453 behind the fact that you probably shouldn't be looking at month on month revisions and you should just step back and look at the prior trend. And we actually have a chart on that. That's chart three of let's look at instead of even the year on year rate of increase, the annualized six month change, because we talked about inflation really hitting once all in a, in a six month period. And now we've seen a very significant deceleration already. So this is the CPI. This is an average of the annualized run rate over the last six months. Blue line is everything. You see, you can barely see that little uptick. That's the uptick of the 0.5 increase. And you might be surprised to know that if you strip out shelter, and we can talk about that as well, which I think you should, and you should for a lot of reasons because CPIX shelter is a lot more predictive for corporate profit margins as well, you'll see that even with that little uptick, you didn't uptick on the CPIX shelter and you are now around zero, something that did not happen in the 70s and 80s. So the way I think about it, is an inflation scare? Not really. I think the trend is pretty intact. Okay, so all of those bits of, I'll call them wacky data, but I, you'll have another word for them. But um, I mean, the cool. Fed knows this, it's the government data, they, they understand that. Yes. So ultimately, what is the rate strategy, i.e. the Fed doing with rates? So what are they doing with rates if, if they're watching this? Yes, so I think that that's, that is the key question because I think the Fed does really understand this, right? They, I mean, they don't ask me, but I'm sure they have somebody like Denise Chisholm on staff that's saying, no, 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 look at this data, right? So, and they're well, they obviously know the benchmark revision analysis. So they're interested in the trend as well. Now they are interested, more interested than me as an equity market prognosticator of what inflation ultimately will be. I think that as long as the trend is decelerating the sweet spot for equities is actually you know bigger than people expect like between three and a half and five so the equity market can definitely relate to you know a higher inflation rate over time where the fed is 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 much more you know wants to be um very clear about a slowing trend of inflation and a more sustainable lower rate but that said i think that there's two components to the higher rate story so we've seen two-year yields back up and actually i think they took out their prior peak and 10-year yields are now increasing as well, although not nearly as much and not taking out their prior peak. But what you're seeing is that's not just a function of the inflation scare, also a function of higher growth. And that's not a bad thing. I think that people want to twist the Fed into saying, no, 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 the Fed wants growth very, very slow. Therefore, it will crush inflation. Not all growth is inflationary. Right? We've seen this before. Right? We saw this movie from 2011. To, you know, to 2018, not all, you know, rebounds are massively inflationary. And I think, again, the Fed knows this as well. And they do have this pesky part of their mandate called, you know, full employment. So it's not clear to me that they absolutely want to crush growth. Though some growth is good and higher rates that are a function of some growth is not a bad thing for the equity market. We talked a little bit about this. Yeah, but the equity market expects the Fed to cut. They're not going to get their cut, and that's going to be a bad thing. You go and you backtest that, and you say, okay, well, what if the curve, you know, the inverted curve gets it wrong, and it's actually much flatter? Maybe the Fed does more. Maybe they go 25, and then they go 25 every other for much longer than you think. Terminal rate's not a problem. It's the rate of ascent of that change that is the problem. So when you look back historically, and the Fed 
you know, cuts less than you think, that tends to be a bullish signal for the equity market. Why? Because there's more growth and that's good for corporate profits. Okay. So was all of the equity sell-offs that we saw last year, in fact, the hard landing? It very well may be. Like, and this is, I, I think nobody really believes me when I say this because NBER has not called it a recession, right? And I think we are very narrowly focused on an NBER defined recession. And I think that one thing that I've learned in studying the equity market is that no patterns are crystal clear right? No playbook is not a range of outcomes. We like talk about average outcomes as if they're specific and we can bet on them. We cannot. Mostly from a timing perspective, but even from an indicator perspective, because every cycle is truly different. And one of the things that we should be able to sort of diagnose is are those differences more predictive? So we do have a chart on real average hourly earnings. So let's pull that up. That's chart number one. We talked at least, I think, last, we started talking last fall about how surveys are really good leading indicators for real wage growth. One of those surveys. Sorry to interrupt you, but surveys um, is different from other data. How? Just sort of remind us. Yes. No, that's a great question. So surveys are different from other data because more often than not, economic data is lagging. You're literally looking in the rearview mirror. So surveys, just again, any indicator on people asking businesses what they think, people asking consumers what they think, manufacturing industries what they think, is usually a pretty good gauge of not only what customers are doing right now, but what they will do. So that's usually better than the lagging economic data like payrolls, right? Payrolls are truly the ultimate lagging indicator. But what you see in surveys is they tend to be more leading and more predictive, right? So we can think about that. So what you saw starting last fall was that the percentages of small businesses intending to raise wages minus the percentage of small businesses intending to raise prices, proxy for real wage growth, inflected massively. And you are actually seeing that now play out in the data that we, I think we have on that chart. Um, And you can see the inflection coming in real wage growth. And I think that that's very significant because if you'll like remember in 2020, if people were charting real average hourly earnings, you'd find that it was the only recession going back to 1962 that didn't have a contraction in real average hourly earnings or wage income, right? So think about it that way. But 2022 is actually the steepest contraction. That's the CPI chart that we already talked about. The first chart is, um, yes, there it is. Um, so what you can see is 2022, I think we're down at the trough. We were down 4% on real average hourly earnings. This is the deepest contraction that we have seen without a recession, right? So we haven't had the official recession. Look, maybe we get it, maybe we don't, I don't know. But maybe if you say, all right, well, we've had all you know real income growth contract every other cycle. What if we throw out that recession playbook and just look at real average hourly earnings? Is there a pattern more significant around those troughs than there is around recessions. And if you go to the second chart, you'll see that there is. It tends to be pretty cohesive. So the the green line, uh, not the the, um, horizontal line, uh, the the chart, the the trough, um, the green dotted line, thank you, sorry. Uh, The green dotted line shows you the average of all the hard landings going back to 1960. So that's 1970, 1980, 1982, 1990, and the financial crisis. It includes that as well. And what you'll see is that you usually have equity market bottoms around that trough in real wages that we may be having 
right? We may be experiencing right now and survey indicators suggest that that inflection that we have seen is likely to continue. So what you see is, well, does the equity market have upside in that pattern? If we, again, throw out the NBER defined recessions, just look at what has usually been correlated to them, the answer is yes, there is upside in the equity market based on that hard landing. So that is sort of a way to think about, are we sure that the hard landing didn't already happen? I have a couple other charts on my LinkedIn feed as well about, are you sure? Because if you shrink real GDP growth to a six month rate of change, traction. Okay, so this this is completely fascinating because it really is a little bit the opposite of, of what we saw. So when we go back to the 2020 recession, which, you know, as we all know, was from a pandemic, so it was weird, but in any case, it was a recession. That was the only one without real wage growth. Is that right? Yes, that's right. We dropped a whole bunch of stimulus checks on people so that real wages never contracted. Okay. So, so this is like a fairly interesting, well, it's not a survey, but it's an indicator, as you say. Um, right. So we're off cycle this cycle. That's one way to sort of think about it. Like people want to keep applying this cycle pattern to current. And I think that because of what happened during the pandemic, this cycle is a bit off cycle. So maybe we did sort of have the recession as defined by an equity market last year, but maybe, I don't know, maybe we'll have the NBER defined recession this year. I don't know, but if I think about what patterns are more specific to equity markets, it's around real wage growth and it is even around real GDP growth. So, you know, I think one of the debates as well is, are we in, are we having a hard landing? Are we having a soft landing? Are we having no landing? If we just look, so GDP was just released or revised. I can't remember which one. If we just look at the year on year rate of real GDP growth, we are below 1%. That's kind of hard to call it anything other than a hard landing. I mean, you're close to the bottom decile of all historic instances, right? We used to, back in the day, define soft landings as around 2%. We're well below 2%. This is certainly not no landing, right? Below 1% is not no landing. I mean, maybe it's not a hard landing yet, but we're certainly heading that way. I think that the equity market is having a problem because you can't possibly have bottomed in the equity market, let's call the prior bottom October, Mm -hmm. or maybe even in June, depending on which indicator you're looking at. But let's call it October. You can possibly have bought them before the contraction has already has even happened, right? What you'll see, and again, I don't have the chart here, but if you go to my LinkedIn, it will be there. I, I released the note internally, but haven't released it externally yet. What you'll find is half the time stocks do bottom when growth is still positive. So to me, like this pattern does not look odd to me at all. I mean, I do get that equities are confusing. In some ways, I guess I'm much more open-minded to them having confusing patterns because I don't think that the equity market should make sense. If it makes sense, it's probably too simple. So the answers are very complicated. And again, like putting the pattern recognition in this, do you say like, okay, can that October low not hold? No, looking at it this way, that makes complete sense to me. It also makes complete sense in real income growth churning. The only way it doesn't make sense is if you narrowly focus on one definition that, like I said, has a very wide range of outcomes. So if we take some of the thoughts of whether it was or wasn't or whether we're in it, um, a recession, uh, what do we think of the fourth quarter earnings that are coming out? Because there's an element of sort of chucking everything in, including the kitchen sink, which sometimes happens with fourth quarter earnings. I mean, you know, get it out of the way and start a fresh and new year. But 
What do you make of the earnings? Do they fit with that type of scenario? They definitely could. So it's interesting because I think consumer discretionary earnings haven't been, I haven't seen the aggregate numbers yet, but haven't been particularly good. Certainly the headline numbers have not been good. And I don't think that that's really any surprise. So I think that some investors are using that as potential reason to sell. But to your point, this could be sort of that final leg down. Again, looking back in history, trying to recognize a pattern, what we saw is early last spring, I think it was like February, March, consumer discretionary estimated earnings or even trailing earnings peaked, right? So we know that, or at least historically speaking, that generally speaking, once they've peaked, they tend to decline for the better part of a year. It was longer in the financial crisis. So on average, you could say it's like 12 to 13 months. Well, that would be sort of late spring or let's call it very early summer that you would expect a bottom. So this is in line with that kitchen sinking process of that maybe final leg down. Now, what we also know with that is if you wait for that final leg down to complete, you probably miss the bulk of the move because consumer discretionary stocks bottom before their earnings bottoms on average nine months in advance. Sometimes it's close to, you know, it's four to six months, but on average nine months. So really, when I look at the data, the relative strength of consumer discretionary on an equal weighted basis bottomed around June, this fits entirely in line with this kitchen sinking process. So this is one of my odd, you know, procedural historical ways of looking at what is likely to be construed as very bad news because the earnings weren't good to, well, wait a minute, within this historical pattern, I think that this is a continued buy opportunity for the sector. And I do see a lot of continual um, odds that consumer discretionary is still likely to be leadership. So interesting because everyone's trying to figure that out. So uh, that is your top sector, top three, top or bottom three. So top three are certainly consumer discretionary. Um, I'd say right behind it is financials. Within that, I think banks and then metals and mining that we've talked about. All three have a very cohesive, I would say, theme, which is not always the case for me. It's not very cohesive. Um, sometimes it's you know eclectic, as maybe you can tell by my talking. But all three of them have what I would call valuation support. And Denise's definition of valuation support is they are near bottom quartile levels and have had historic odds of outperforming 70% of the time from those quartile levels, from those bottom quartile levels. So your that valuation support means it's been predictive in the past. That's why energy is not here. Yes, energy is cheap. No, it's not predictive here. So all of those have that. Yes, they're at valuation support, they have strong odds, and all three of those, consumer discretionary financials mining, have a catalyst. For consumer discretionary, that's an acceleration in real income growth. For bank stocks, or I should say for the financial sector overall, it's the decline in credit spreads that we are continuing to see, even with a little bit of you know, consternation in the equity market. And then for metals and mining, I think that we're seeing a rebound in global PLIs. And that's sort of playing out today. And I think that that's likely to continue as well. I mean, the good thing is that, you know, when you're at new orders, I think that we were close to ISM manufacturing new orders got as low as 42-ish. Um, that's usually a good time to buy metals and mining stocks. So I think that those all have really strong valuation supports. You're not just betting on a rebound, but also have catalysts in 2023. And the bottom three sectors are anything that's defensive. So still consumer staples, still utilities, and still real estate. I mean, no change in that. I think that real estate is a quasi-defensive. It screams defensive to me because it has poor fundamentals and it's expensive.
Right. So interesting. And uh, yeah, I was going to say they're all expensive. Okay. L a bunch of questions have come in and then, and then you've answered many of them. So I <laughs> think we've already gone through some of those. A couple of questions of regions around the world. One, you can probably put these together. So do you see Europe as potential value trap still? Yeah. Thoughts on Asia? Yes. The other question kind of fits with this. So when you look across sectors, are there particular regions with outsized opportunities? Example, for instance, Europe versus EM versus US. Yeah. So US mid caps over EM over Europe. So I think if there's any sort of head fake story in this, hey, we've had a really significant rebound. Maybe I just want to use this as an opportunity to sell and actually pick on Europe. So I do see, and I'd say Europe, but you know, from the data I'm going to talk about, because I think that I'll end up having that on LinkedIn, I've looked at IFA, right? So you know, obviously Europe is a big component within that. But if you look at IFA valuation levels, yes, especially on forward earnings yield relative to median stocks within the S&P 500, you are at all time, and by all time, I've got data going back to 1990, so this is not as long as 1962, but at all time, cheap valuation levels on a relative basis. And you know what? You have 11% odds of owning it when it's in the bottom quartile, meaning that cheap is not a reason. So it's that same thing. Like you might be at valuation support, but it has not been predictive historically. So that to me is screams value trap, right? Every time it's cheap, you don't want to buy it because why? Because fundamentals get worse. And that's what we're sort of to see and play out in the data. So we're seeing that, you know, it's been a secular decline in operating margins in Europe relative to the US. And now I'm being specific for Europe. The same is true for returns. And I don't think I'm seeing anything different this cycle that suggests that Europe is going to be significantly stronger than the US on a go forward basis. So unless you as an investor really think that, then yes, if you think that, then you will likely get super juiced by valuation. But using valuation alone, when it hasn't worked in the past for the last 20 years, you need something to say it's different this time and it's going to be significantly better for Europe. I don't see that. I actually see growth being steadier and stronger in the U.S. And I actually see inflation decelerating quicker in the U.S. than it is in Europe. And Europe's central bank is more behind than the Fed is. So I think this whole setup is not particularly good for growth in Europe. And I think that's what you need to really get valuation to be a buy signal. It has to be in conjunction with better fundamentals. Does that just come down to who has energy and who doesn't? It might be. It might be. Yes. Um, as much as we're not quite where we were, we're bumping around zero in terms of net imports in the U.S. So, you know, you don't hear the words energy independent anymore, but it's pretty close on the data. Right. Interesting. Um, we haven't talked about in a while uh, QT. I, is that something that will, you know, come into starker relief at some point, do you think? It definitely will once we get the rate story to unfold a little more. Um, and I think it's going to be, QT is going to be a bigger issue in the fixed income market than the equity market. I mean, we only had one fixed, you know, QT, you know, parallel, and it was really a non-event for the equity market. So I can't say with just one instance that it's going to be the exact same. But what we can say is that there was an outside significant within the fixed income market, as there was to the equity market. So I think if we sort of focus on that, what we know to be more predictive, I think that's where you can really expect the volatility. And I think it's influential in the sense of if you've heard me talk about relative valuation, that's been more of a driver to an equity market advance than absolute valuation. 
So I think that there are, well, I still get PMs that say, you know, I'd rather buy stocks at 15 times. You're probably not going to get 15 times. We were there briefly in October at the low, but now they're, you know, let's call it 18, 20. I don't know if we're talking about trailing or forward, but when you say, okay, you know, now it's too expensive. When I look at it, you know, we're around median level. And when I divide it into quartiles, every quartile has 75% odds of a market advance. So valuation doesn't really help you a lot as an equity market investor. It helps you within it, but it doesn't help you like, should I buy equities now? What does more often than not help you is the equity risk premium or the relative yield differential between the earnings yield and let's call it the 10-year treasury or even the two-year treasury. Usually they're not that different. But in this case, they are. Versus yields? Or is that what yes. we're talking about? Yeah. Earnings yield versus treasury yield. So, you know, higher is cheaper, essentially. So flipping that 18 into a yield one over the inverse minus whatever we are at the 10-year treasury yield, you know, in a two-year I saw is, you know, four, five or whatever it is, whatever the 10-year is, three heavy, three, four, whatever. Um, anyway, so that differential. And what you can say is if the equity market is much cheaper than the fixed income market from a yield perspective, it does have higher odds market advance, right? It has higher odds of actually going up. Um, and I think that some investors are saying, well, we're much more expensive relative to treasuries than we have been just over this last narrow time frame since the financial crisis. And that is definitely true. Generally speaking, you don't want to own equities after a financial crisis. So it had a lot of valuation to work off, but we're still in the top quartile of history. And I will say that Look, it's not clear to me that I think that bonds are more likely a buy when we're up in this in this stage again, and we're up like especially two years at four and a half. But what is clear when you look through the data, and I just did a, a white paper on 60-40 portfolios, what's clear when you look at government treasuries, the risk adjusted returns, the information ratio, now I have data going back to the 1930s, it's lower than the S&P 500. I mean, it's shocking, like how much volatility we've seen in bonds, government bonds in the last two years has now made it more, like worse of a risk adjusted return than the equity market. So look, it's not clear to me. I think that there are people who say, well, you know, equities relative to bonds, we're talking about a risk free rate of four and a half percent. No, no, no. With that volatility that we've just seen, maybe equities should be re-rating relative to a bond class, especially with the government, that is much, much more volatile than we've ever seen in it. So again, I don't think that valuation, I can't even remember what the question was in the beginning, but I don't think that valuation well, is actually a headwind for equities. Okay, okay. Amazing place to end in, in any case. Um, prices are going up. Well, if prices are going up, then consumer discretionary. I mean, is that is that sort of do you think prices are going up like is this is this a step up in prices um period i think that this is for inflation or do you mean for stock i prices? mean uh well i'm sort of talking about oh well that's a good question ultimately for stock prices it, within consumer but I, i'm just curious if there's an overall sort of growth slash price increase in the world ergo consumer discretionary is that is it but we're yes i think that that is a succinct way to put it is that growth is likely higher prices are likely higher and the person to benefit from those is the u.s consumer because of the inflection of real wage growth and that means consumer discretionary stocks are more likely to buy amazing there uh i think we'll leave it there thank you very very much denise for taking us through things that are often non-consensus and you always bring to us 
in a, a very digestible and interesting and fascinating way. I appreciate your time. <laughs> Always happy to be here. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.